You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Larry Vanasser. He's a professor at Cornell and uh, the Mining School of Biomedical Engineering, the Sibley School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. Uh, Dr. Vanasser joined Cornell in 2003 after five years in the faculty of the Center for Tissue Engineering at the UMass Medical School. He did a postdoctoral fellowship in orthopedic research laboratory at the Massachusetts General Hospital and in the Center for Biomedical Engineering at uh, MIT. And he currently serves on the editorial board of the journal Tissue Engineering. So, uh, Dr. Benassa, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me about uh, your your recent work. What are you working on right now, and you know, what's the goal of it? Yeah, so my, my work really f- focuses broadly on trying to bring um, engineered tissues uh, to the clinic, uh, specifically tissues that... that uh, are focused on uh, restoring mobility to the body, uh, things like articular cartilage, meniscus, um, intervertebral disc. Uh, these are all different kinds of cartilage that that uh, degrade uh, both as we get older and with uh, disease. So my lab is focused on uh, making new uh, tissues by various um, manufacturing techniques that are kind of more recently been brought to bear on on trying to manufacture tissues. All right, so the, the tissues you're focusing on are not uh, necessarily organs, but more mechanical or musculoskeletal type tissues. Correct, and and the line between those uh, areas is a little bit blurry. So, for example, the intervertebral disc is a uh, complicated combination of different kinds of tissues. There's a couple of different kinds of cartilage and an end plate that integrate into the spine. So something like the disc that has multiple tissue types that need to be organized in the correct way is almost, uh, you can really think of it as an organ. Uh, Articular cartilage is is slightly different. Uh, It's a single tissue type that lines the bones in joints. So I think we're on the borderline, if you will, between single tissues and more complicated organs. The the tissues and organs that we're making are uh, mechanical in nature and their their tasks in the body are to perform mechanical function. How far along are you in the process? Are you, you know, is the scaffolding you're using working? Is it being rejected by the host? I mean, are you at the point where you can build up, you know, multicellular type tissues? Absolutely. So this work has is at a range of uh, progress in terms of in vitro assembly of different tissues with more complicated structures, all the way to in vivo studies, some in large animal models that uh, document that in fact we can place 
uh, implants that we've, we've made by processes like printing or molding, place them in the body, they will mature in the body and uh, restore mechanical function, at least in, in uh, some cases, large animal models. So, all right, if they're maturing and growing in the body, so are you implanting, like, induced pluripotent stem cells that are on their own figuring out how to differentiate and become the right tissues, or are you implanting a whole, you know, disc itself, let's say, the hooking up uh, to adjacent tissues on its own? Right. So the disc is an excellent example of this. So we've not worked specifically with uh, IPS cells, with induced pluripotent stem cells. We've worked either with um, differentiated cells, in this case, chondrocytes, uh, different kinds of chondrocytes that come from the disc. We've also used mesenchymal stem cells, which are another kind of adult stem cell that you can derive from bone marrow or, or blood or other, uh, other tissues. In both cases, we can implant tissue we can implant constructs that are not fully mature, which means that they don't have the full uh, extracellular matrix, as, as we refer to it, uh, as the native tissue. Uh, but after implantation, the cells that we implant in, in the matrix, in the scaffold, fill out that scaffold, which will both increase the maturity and mechanical performance of the implant that we placed, as well as help that integrate into the surrounding tissue in, in the case of the intervertebral disc, that's the spine. Are there any hangups? I mean, I thought that uh, doing this kind of thing was fraught with all kinds of issues and uh, it was difficult to get uh, you know, a good result. Well, like any other problem that's really hard, you have to break it up into its, into its constituent parts. And, and when you do that and you try to solve them separately, sometimes things turn out to be a little harder than you expect and sometimes things aren't as bad as you expect. So I'll give you an example. So uh, we published a study a little over a year ago, uh, which was the uh, use of these tissue-engineered discs to replace cervical uh, IVDs in, uh, in this case, dogs, in, in beagles. So uh, beagles, as well as several other species of dogs, get spontaneous disc degeneration just like people. Uh, so there's actually a veterinary application for this technology as well as a human application. And uh, we expected uh, that there would be mechanical challenges with, with uh, going to using these uh, implants in a, in a larger animal. And in fact, there, there were some. The geometry, the anatomy of the beagle spine is, is a little bit different than humans. So we uh, ran into some challenges in actually just making sure these implants stayed where we put them, uh, at least uh, initially. Uh, um, when we achieved that well, actually, the, the results were, were quite good. Uh, the, this tissue, as I said before, matured, progressed mechanically, integrated into the spine. And uh, an example of a problem that, that turned out to perhaps not be as much of an issue as we thought was that this was a, a study using uh, allogenic cells, meaning that we, we took uh, cells from, from um, cadaveric sources and were able to implant them into the, the beagle spine. And even though it was uh, not allergenic, even though we were giving um, different kinds of cells uh, to uh, these dogs, there was essentially no rejection response to the, to the transplant, which is something that we were hoping for and, in fact, turned out to be uh, even a more positive result than we could have expected. So for tissues like cartilage that have little to no vascularization, this uh, rejection issue for uh, cells that are embedded in these dense tissues turns out to, in our hands at least, not be as much of a problem as one might expect, uh, and other groups have now shown this as well. 
but then there are, are maintained continued problems with mechanical stabilization and uh, adjusting the anatomy uh, to the anatomy of, of any given uh, experimental model. Why, they, why do you have to adjust the anatomy at all? Doesn't it grow? I mean, are you, are you inserting fully formed parts of tissue or, uh, you know, how is the final connection and sure. integration into the host, into the body made? I would think that if you leave room for that, and you're able to orchestrate it or have the body orchestrated, it would connect in the right way. Sure. Let's let's take a step back and, and think about the beginning of this of this process. So for all of these studies, we're using uh, anatomy of of any individual patient, if you will, to help design these implants. So the idea is that we can take an MRI scan or a CT scan, and from that information, design an implant that is directly appropriate for that recipient. Right. So for any given case. We have to make sure that, that it, it basically, in the most basic terms, that it fits, right? It needs to be the right height, the right width, uh, even the right shape. Not The discs, even though we call them discs, are not exactly always perfect right cylinders. Sometimes they're a little uh, uh, bigger in the front than in the back. Um, so we have to adjust for all of that anatomy, uh, as well as the fact that, for example, in canines, the, uh, the discs are not, the, the vertebrae are not, um, kind of perfectly aligned with, with the neck, if you will. They're a little tilted. They're a little slanted in a way that's different than in people. So then you also have to think about, uh, is there, uh, can you design the implants slightly differently to make sure they stay in place better? What is, so you put in an implant. What stages does the implant go through, and what do you have to do to make sure there's like full integration and use of it? So, so these, these implants, uh, we grow in the lab for about uh, two to three weeks before we implant them, and that's to make sure that the implants organized the right way, that they are a little bit more mechanically robust than when we first make them. And uh, we actually want to, the, one of the tricky parts of this process is if we wait too long, if we make something that is very rigid and very stiff, then, then think about uh, squeezing a watermelon seed between your fingers, right? If you have, if you have things that are, if you have three rigid things, if you have the two vertebrae and a very stiff disc, then you, then you risk simply kind of pushing the whole implant out, right? Rather than, rather than implanting a watermelon seed, you would like to implant something that was like a pretty stiff pillow, right? You would like it to not totally collapse, right? You need it to separate the vertebrae, but you also need it to kind of conform to uh, the, the end plate and to the vertebrae so that you get a really good interface to enable that integration. And also, if the, if the material you're putting in is too dense, then it's very hard for that bridging to happen between your implant and the neighboring tissue. Well, yeah, what, what does the bridging look like? Again, is that accomplished by the body, or is that accomplished, uh, you know, by injecting various uh, components that, that do the bridging? Like, how does it actually happen? So we have not specifically attempted to engineer that bridging process. It's a great question. Uh, I've been asked... Uh, multiple times at meetings, do we know whether our implants are growing into the spine or whether the spine is growing into our implants? And those are actually uh, quite challenging questions to, to answer. I, I, think, I think the answer is it's a little bit of both. Uh, there is in, in, the, uh, in the end plates, there is a resident population of stem cells that, that perhaps are participating in this integration process. Really what it means for something mechanical like, like a disc is that you have cells and or collagen that are that are bridging between uh, the body and and the implant. Uh, so collagen 
is the main structural protein in our body. And whenever, whatever you think about, whether it's a torn ACL or whether it's uh, a cartilage defect or, you know, just about any other uh, healing process in the body that's mechanical, that is accomplished by, by collagen fibers bridging uh, from the, the uh, body to the new uh, implant. And so we, we are quite sure that, that this is mediated by collagen. Um, but after that, it, it's still a process of our understanding the exact mechanism of that bridging process so that we can influence it and, and, and engineer it. So your goal so far is to mechanically shape the implant so that it has the best likelihood of aligning properly and the shortest distance to go. And you, know, you want to make it customized and just right that the rest of the process, however it may be happening, is easy or easier. Sure. So our job is to make sure that we place an implant that is sufficiently mechanically competent to start so that we can keep the vertebrae separated and allow for the motion of the spine, but in, uh, and also biologically active enough so that it continues to deposit matrix, become stiffer and more mature, and integrate with the spine around it. Uh, as you suggested, that in order for that to happen, the geometry needs to be right. The interface with the existing anatomy needs to be correct. Well, I guess by observing what happens, you know, naturally in the body when um, a disc is damaged, for instance, when it has certain geometries, you know, how does the body react to that? I would guess that that's uh, baked into what you make. You know, if you have sharp geometries, do they tend to grow together faster or smooth ones? Are there, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's involved, but uh, can you say a little bit more about Sure. And you know that you've got, you get the right geometry or you're just imitating what was there and that's probably the best thing to do. Right. I mean, so our assumption is that we want to try to replace the initial anatomy as best we can, right? And, and it's a good question as to whether that is the right, the right way to go. One of our challenges as, as people who are addressing this uh, issue of cartilage repair and regeneration is uh, cartilage does not repair on its own very well, right? So if, if you're thinking about... Uh, uh, wound healing and skin, or if you're thinking about um, bone healing, right, there are very good um, natural processes that, that you can use as a template. But really, most of the time, if you damage your intervertebral disc or your cartilage or meniscus, uh, there is not really a, a very effective healing response. Um, perhaps when we're younger, there is, uh, but certainly in, in adults, whether it's cartilage or meniscus or, or an irritable disc or ear or nose or trachea, cartilage does not really have an effective um, built-in healing response, which is why, you know, we, we have to figure out the best way to engineer it uh, because we don't have a good template from nature on how to do it. Well, the interface, for instance, of the, you know, the IBT with the rest of the spine, what's there? You know, what's the material on, on, on all side, you know, either side of the interface and in the middle of it? Right. So, the, so we have the, the intervertebral disc, which is in the center. There's a thin uh, cartilaginous end plate uh, where that, that cartilage is not the same, but it's pretty similar to the kind of cartilage that lines your, your joints. Then there is kind of a dense uh, bone layer and then a, a less dense bone layer going out. So it's, it's pretty complicated, right? You've got the two kinds of cartilage in the disc then another cartilage end plate, and then, and then thick, a thick subchondral bone plate, and then trabecular bone. Um, that's lots of different components to try to get right. And, and you're trying to replace 
all of it, or you're just trying to replace the, uh, you know, for now, just, just the, the IVT itself? Yeah, there are lots of different strategies. So our group is right now just thinking about the IVD and trying to figure out how to connect that to the cartilaginous end plate. But there are, uh, there are other groups that are thinking about um, do we need to make all the components, right? Do we need to make something that terminates uh, well into – that terminates in bone, right? So the, the great thing about that approach is bone-to-bone -bone healing is quite good. Uh, and, you know, things integrate uh, – bone integrates with bone really well. Bone integrates with metal pretty well, right? This is why most hip and knee implants, um, the vast, vast majority, do quite well, and you get good osseous integration. Uh, so – if you can uh, make one of these implants that has either bone or, or porous metal on the end, you know, you've got a good chance of that integrating well. But then you change the problem to how do we make that uh, integrate with this soft tissue that we made. So this, this hard to soft tissue integration problem uh, is one that kind of permeates uh, a lot of the different efforts that we have in the lab. Yeah, maybe the bone cells, for some reason, have much more cell-to-cell -cell communication Maybe you seed the, uh, you know, the uh, the cartilage with a, you know, x number of bone cells, and maybe that helps, uh, you know, bridge the gap. I don't know, or if that would be a bad thing. But I guess it's just ideas that come to mind. Right. So a, a challenge for doing these kinds of things is uh, simply the mechanics of that integration, right? And and so what I mean by that is, um, if you found a way to, you know, effectively glue Jello to steel right? Um, you pull that apart and that interface fails all the time, right? Because you pull and you, and you pull and the metal doesn't, doesn't move at all, doesn't deform at all, but the jello does, it starts to neck, you get stress concentrations and bang, you, you fail right at the interface. So we need to find a way to make that happen so that that mechanical interface isn't quite so sharp, right? Mm. But we need to find a way to uh, kind of blunt or smooth out that transition or elongate it over a slightly longer length scale, right? So that you don't, you know, definitively fail at that interface all the time. Is there no way to observe how, um, you know, bones grow together or other structures grow together? This is an area where we absolutely take inspiration from nature. So we've been studying uh, all sorts of different hard to soft tissue interfaces uh, to understand that transition Right, and it turns out that nature does this by a few different um, mechanisms of changing composition, of changing structure, of how fibers are aligned. Uh, it's quite complicated, and and it it can be slightly different for each different kind of interface. It's a little different for how tendons insert to bone, or cartilage inserts to bone, or a meniscus inserts to bone. They're they share some principles, but they're not all exactly the same. So how successful has this been? Are you doing this in mice, or what kind of creatures are you doing the implants in? So we've done, again, in the DISC project, we've, we've done this several experiments in uh, rats that have been quite successful. That was in the, in the tail spine, which obviously doesn't have as much uh, axial load as, as what we would expect in even larger animals and certainly not in, in humans. Uh, and that's when we moved from doing uh, some experiments in whole disc replacement in, in dogs and in uh, kind of patching of, of defects to the disc in sheep. Both of those have been, have been uh, quite promising. Uh, there are still a few, quite a few things to, to iron out before we would have to think about 
that we'd have to think about before we went to, to humans. Uh, but the transition from doing these kinds of things in, in small animals to large animals has been quite promising. Oh, okay. So, I mean, how far away, what, what are some of the milestones you need to hit and able for uh, people to have these kind of transplants? It's a great question. So you have to think about different kinds of milestones, if you will. So in many ways, we've, we've, checked a lot of the boxes for the scientific milestones. So we've, we've demonstrated, as I said before, the, the feasibility of doing this with allergenic cells, um, the feasibility, the fact that, that these samples mature uh, in the body uh, and are, in fact, better after six months in the body than they were when we put them in, which is different than traditional medical implants, which, which tend to you know, wear and fatigue and only get worse with time. Our challenges are more uh, on the kind of manufacturing level and on the regulatory level, and those two things are linked. So it's one thing to uh, have experiments that, that work on, you know, some fraction of, of uh, experiments in, in the lab, some fraction of, of experimental subjects. If you're going to think about uh, making a medical product, it needs to work every time, and it needs to work every time with a very high degree of, of certainty. So that involves our becoming better at, at manufacturing, at reproducibility and scalability of the processes we make. We need to figure out not how to make uh, 100 or 10 of these in a lab, but we need to think about if we really want to help everybody who has um, injured discs, this is now tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. How do we scale our processes to go from the lab scale to a manufacturing scale? And that's associated with the regulatory challenges, right? So the kinds of things we're thinking about right now is what would a definitive preclinical trial look like, right? What, what kind of animal study would we need to do to even convince the FDA that, that it would be worth considering a human study, right? So in, in thinking about the timeline, that's um, the kind of definitive preclinical studies are still probably, you know, a few years off, right? And then it's a process of, of conducting them, documenting them, communicating with the FDA, uh, getting their feedback, making sure that this is something that we can do with confidence in people. So, uh, you know, for something like the DISC, this is probably still uh, something that's, that's a few years away at least. Uh, but I used to have these conversations, and I used to say they were 20 years away, and I don't think we're 20 years away anymore. But this doesn't seem to be a mass manufacturing thing at all. It seems to be a custom thing. You know, where someone's missing a DISC, they, you grow it, and then you put it into them, but it's customized to them. It seems like a one-by-one one process. Yeah, this is, again, a, a, an example of a real challenge from a regulatory perspective, right? So this is what's, what's called the lot size of one, right? So let's go to the other extreme, something like a hip or a knee implant that you can solve with what I, is my own personal term, I like to think of it as the shoe size analogy, right? We're not making, it's not one size fits all, uh, but it's also not uh, customized to that person, you know, you're a, you know, size nine double E, right? So there's some finite number of sizes, right? You can make 100,000 of these, 10,000 of these, 5,000 of them, and pull 20 off the lot or 100 off the lot and test them and say these are good to go. But if we're making a different lot for every person, now we have to sacrifice that particular, you know, tissue that we just spent, you know, weeks or months making in order to document that it's good enough to go into that patient, and now we don't have an implant anymore. So we've got to make two or three or five just to implant one. So 
there's this compromise between do we really need to do customization? How different is anatomy between people? Can we make some number of preset sizes, right, that we can, that we can treat more like a batch such that we don't have to sacrifice, we don't have to make two or three implants just to document that these implants are safe to go into people. This is where the you mentioned iPSCs from the start, and whether it's iPSCs or some other cell source, to be able to have a universal cell source so that we don't have to uh, then characterize each individual donor and or recipient uh, for metabolism and, and whatever else you're going to, to uh, be required to document for any particular lot. If there's just a bank of cells that we can use for everyone, that would be incredibly catalytic. Hmm. So our, our processes, the printer doesn't care, the molds don't care whether this is a banked source that works for everyone or whether it's an individual autologous implant. The process works the same. Uh, so it would be of great benefit if, if there were this kind of universal cell source. Why would, the, uh, why would there be resistance to do trials in this at all? I mean, if, if someone's missing a disc, if the disc is crushed or broken, I mean, right now there's nothing that can really help them. So why would it be so difficult or such a difficult hill to climb to get the, you know, have an implant considered? Yeah. So, I mean, you have to understand the, the, the premise of the, of the regulatory process, which is, which is, you know, there for very good reasons, right? We want to make sure that these, that, that these implants, first of all, are safe, right? That uh, we can make them in a way that is safe every time not just, you know, five out of 10 or nine out of 10 or even 999 times out of 1,000, right? We, we want to make sure that, that every patient who would ever receive this is, is getting a, an implant that, that we know is safe. And, you know, while, while there isn't any, there are, there are not any options to regrow discs, there are options. There's spinal fusion, which, which has its drawbacks, but, you know, it's, it's generally quite safe. So, you know, we 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 are not operating in a vacuum in that sense. There are alternative procedures. We we think that uh, once we've figured out all of this, uh, this will be a much better option. But uh, you know, it's it is our obligation and and the obligation of of the regulatory agencies to make sure that you know uh, anything that is put in people is is you know safe to um, the best that that we and they can document it. So I think everyone would be thrilled, right? I, I think there's no there's no resistance to putting in something that is shown to be safe and effective. Um, the the inertia in the process, if you will, is um, going through all of the appropriate processes to make sure that uh, what we're making is safe and effective. So what's the timeline, and what are the milestones you need to hit in order to get this uh, into people? Right. So the the milestones as uh, are as I said to perform definitive preclinical animal studies where we use level of every single ingredient that goes into this, uh, that they are documented their source, documented that every single thing we use, every single component um, is fit for human use, that it comes from a source that is uh, manufactured by good manufacturing practices, that it's documented the appropriate way. So as I said, the, the, the next kind of step would be a definitive uh, preclinical trial. The results of that come out, and then they then those are handed to the FDA, and we have a conversation about the results of those trials and whether they the, they warrant the initiation of a clinical trial, 
right? And then there's the whole clinical trial, phase one, phase two, phase three process. So how long do you think this would take? Uh, I mean, well, even before you go along that path, you know, you're doing this in animals, but um, you're doing it, I guess, kind of in a non-critical, non-weight-bearing you know, area. Is the next step to go to that first, prove it? So all the work that we've done so far in the total disc replacement uh, has been in the cervical spine, which is, again, uh, it is weight-bearing, but not as much as the lumbar spine, obviously. And that would probably be the first application in humans for, for obvious reasons. We would probably target cervical disc replacement first. Uh, and then you accumulate um, information and you accumulate confidence. And if you have uh, a large number of, of patients uh, who, who um, do really well with a tissue-engineered cervical disc, then, again, you make the case for a trial to say, let's try a similar approach in the lumbar spine. Mm. So we, we certainly have already progressed in animal models to load-bearing, uh, not quite the same load-bearing that you would get in the lumbar spine, um, but, you know, some level of load-bearing as we find in the, in the cervical spine. Okay. But this is still, uh, you know, what's your guess on how many years until, um, you know, we're doing like cervical disc replacements with people? Right. I mean, so I, I think that we are uh, within about five years of these clinical trials. Um, you know, it's hard to predict clinical, you know, how quickly things move through clinical trials. Um, but right. as I said before, I used to have these conversations and uh, we used to say 20 years. And now if, we're, if we are, you know, down to five before, you know, these first in man trials, I, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, when I look, when I've talked to other tissue engineering people, they seem to be running into different challenges than you. You know, they're going to be having a lot of problems with the scaffolding. And, you know, do you think that you've just picked a, you know, a sweet spot in terms of tissue type or uh, it's just easier to work with and less complicated? Or what are your thoughts there? I think that each application has its own complexity, right? So there are some tissues, if you're trying to make, you know, liver or kidney or brain, right, there's a huge metabolic demand. Right? You need to get these tissues vascularized as quickly as possible because they, 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 they use a huge amount of energy, metabolic energy. Right? Uh, we don't have that problem because uh, cartilage cells are not quite as metabolically active, and there are fewer of them. Uh, the flip side is we have a pretty high mechanical burden. It doesn't really matter if your tissue-engineered liver or kidney um, isn't quite as stiff as it should be. Right? It's not being loaded. So that's just an example to say there, every part has its own complexity, right? Um, you know, to be fair, you know, these are problems that we've been working on for quite a long time. I mean, our first, our first paper on intervertebral disc tissue engineering was published in 2004. Uh, we first presented this concept at meetings almost 20 years ago in, in 2000, 2001. Um, so we've been at this a long time. Um, and we've gone through lots of iterations on scaffold materials and um, manufacturing methods uh, and best culture methods, uh, all of those things. So uh, we have kind of been at this for a long time, um, and, and I think it, it speaks to the, the innate challenges of, of making tissues that are this complex. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to uh, find out more, maybe see some pictures, you know, ask questions, yeah. that kind of thing? Uh, so uh, it would be great if people wanted to go to our to our uh, website. Um, uh, they can uh, they can Google me, uh, uh, and I'm quite easy to find. Uh, so if you uh, if you Google me or search for me at Cornell University, uh, I'm sure that one of the first links you'll find is to our lab. Uh, you can find lots of cool pictures uh, on how to print and mold different kinds of tissues and stay up to date on 
uh, all the recent publications that we have and uh, and, and find out uh, all the exciting things that we're doing. All right, very good. Without your Manasseh, thanks for coming on the, uh, the podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.